Hi, I'm David Rothkopf, the CEO of the DSR Network and host of the Deep State Radio podcast. Here at DSR, we have always believed that in a world as complex, fast-moving, and full of risks as ours, we all need access to the best minds. That is why we have created the leading network for expert podcasts on the issues of the day you care about. We go in-depth on politics, the law, national security, foreign policy, intelligence, defense, climate, and new technologies with regular and special guests that are the leading voices in their fields. We also offer daily updates on global news, our DSR Daily, and on a key story of the day through our partnership with the New Republic. That is why over a million times a month, people like you choose to spend time with our hosts and guests. Membership is what supports this, and members get special benefits, including bonus content in virtually all of our podcasts. It's a big deal, and it's a good deal. Our monthly membership price is going to go up for the first time in our history on March 1st. So now is the time you can lock in our founder's rate of just $5 a month. To do so, go to the dsrnetwork.com and click on membership. It's that easy, but don't delay. Today's rates will only be available for a few more weeks. Join us, support us. Go to the dsrnetwork.com right now. Thank you. Nine, 12, 10. 28-2-23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast. It's that time of the week when we talk about all those things in the world that should trouble you to some degree. Uh, but we will offer you the kind of calming insight that we've been known for for, I don't know, almost a decade. Uh, of course, that comes from wise people, cool hands on the tiller, starting with Dr. Corey Shockey. How are you today, Corey? I am exceedingly well, David. I'm just back in Washington. I missed the snow because I was in Palm Beach. Well, if you were in Washington, you would have missed the snow too because it came and it went. Uh, Of course, Corey is with the American Enterprise Institute from Georgetown University Law Center. We have Rosa Brooks. How are you today, Rosa? I'm very well, David. The world is great. The world is great. God is good. Um, And we have with us from the Financial Times, Edward Luce. How are you, Ed? I'm fine, thank you, David. Okay, you don't sound as upbeat as the rest of them, but I know that will be offset uh, by the ever-bubbly Max Boot of the Council on Foreign Relations, who is also a columnist for the Washington Post. How are you doing today, Max? I am good, David. A little bit jet-lagged after a trip not only to Ukraine, but to the Super Bowl. But I'm starting to uh, to be, uh, you know, semi-lucid, as you will discover. Wait, what? You went to the Super Bowl? 
Okay. He is a serious 49ers fanatic. A, exactly. Corey, Corey knows me. I am a serious 49ers fanatic. Could not miss that opportunity. So, Well, I'm sorry they missed that opportunity. Yeah. It was a wonderful game until like the last minute. Yeah. It really, it was a heart, it was a heartbreaker. Um, well, let's not focus on your trip to the Super Bowl, but let's instead focus on your trip to Ukraine. Because there you were in Ukraine seeing what's going on in Ukraine. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but perhaps being inspired by the courage of the people of Ukraine. And then you return here to this country, uh, where we uh, seem to be um, uh, dragging our feet, maybe the best way of looking at it, possibly uh, 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 something worse with regard to providing aid to Ukraine. How um, does it feel going from the one to the other? Well, being in Ukraine is both enraging and inspiring. Uh, enraging because, you know, when you see up close what Putin is doing to this country for absolutely no reason, I mean, there is no remotest justification outside the, uh, the bizarre corners of uh, Putin's diseased mind for the invasion of Ukraine. When you see what he's actually doing, and, and, and I saw this in going across the width and breadth of the country, from Odessa in the south, up to Dnipro, up to Kharkiv, up to Kiev, just seeing these demolished buildings, seeing these poor people who have been driven out of their homes, the horrors that are being inflicted on Ukraine by Putin is enraging, but it's also inspiring to see how Ukrainians are bearing up after two years of war, that their tremendous resilience, the fact that the country continues to function, truly, truly amazing to see how well things work, even in the eastern cities like Dnipro, much less in, in Kiev. But even though they have almost nightly air raids, people go about their business in a very stoical way that I think probably recalls the way that Londoners behaved during the Blitz and at the beginning of World War II. So it's an inspiration to see that. And then coming back to the States, uh, there is nothing that inspires. It's all, it's, all, uh, it's all rage on my part at all of these isolationist, MAGA-first, America-first extremists who are basically hell-bent on abandoning Ukraine and sacrificing the people of Ukraine to Putin's murderous war machine for no better reason than that their idol, Donald Trump, has a crush on the dictator in the Kremlin. It's nauseating to see. I was relieved to find that at least that there were a good number of Senate Republicans, a slight minority, who are willing to stand up for Ukraine. And by the way, appalled that so-called national security conservatives like Marco Rubio and Lindsey Graham and Tom Cotton were not among their ranks. But nevertheless, you know, there was still a very solid 70-vote majority for uh, supporting Ukraine in the Senate. And now I'm just so appalled to see that Mike Johnson the Trumpy House Speaker refuses to even give the a, a floor vote uh, to the to the foreign aid bill. Uh, if if something doesn't change, if the House doesn't come through, it'll be you know a, a terrible betrayal of the people of 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 Ukraine, and it'll be a terrible blow to the security of Europe and the United States. So, Corey, uh, you know we do this other podcast. Uh, uh, with or perhaps on behalf of the New Republic with Greg Sargent um, called The Daily Blast. And uh, so every day he's got a guest on, and today his guest was Representative Jason Crow. And he said that he has sat in briefings with Mike Johnson, as it has been explained, 
that if this funding does not go through, Ukraine will start to lose, may lose the war, Russia will advance, the threat to Europe will grow. It's been laid out in front of it. So when people say things like, oh, this position of the MAGA GOP is dumb, I bristle a little bit because it's not dumb. It's very conscious. They are completely aware of the consequences of what they are doing, which is why I'm as enraged as Max. Wonder, and, and we haven't spoken since uh, Donald Trump um, uh, over the weekend invited Russia to have its way with Europe um, uh, uh, and said he didn't care what the hell they did with it um, in um, another stunning display not just of recklessness, um, but of raising the threat to the most important alliance in the world. Yeah, I agree with that. Our moment feels more and more to me like the 1930s, um, where the obvious um, aggressors are creating a looming threat and people are willfully ignoring it. But it's actually worse than that because uh, it's not that, that the Speaker of the House or our, the former president um, don't know what they're doing. They do know what they're doing. Uh, and history will judge them cruelly for increasing the risks not just to Ukraine, not just to European security, not just to American allies, but also to the United States with the behavior that they are, with the way they are conducting themselves, what they are saying and what they are doing. I am still hopeful. I still think there's a 50-50 chance that Ukraine assistance will get through the House of Representatives. If it does not, um, I... I think we should be relentless in our criticism of those who would uh, those who would cause Ukraine to lose the war, Europe to become less secure, Russia to be encouraged to do violence, uh, and the United States to be uh, to have ceded its role as the guarantor of stability in the system in a way that has made us safe and prosperous for the last now nearly 80 years. But Ed, what's with these hysterical never-Trumpers here that we're listening to? Uh, after all, Donald Trump is four years younger than, than Joe Biden. Three and a half. <laughs> and, and he is in peak Physical and mental condition. <laughs> That's what we should be talking about, right, Ed? I hear he passed a cognitive test. Yeah. Hey, man, dog, TV. Well, whatever. Go on. I couldn't pass. I don't know. It. I think Biden. I think Biden should should challenge him to a cognitive test. <laughs> you know, um, just just say like, I'll I'll match you any day, and um, and then, you know, Trump Trump will be cornered. Um, so, uh, what was your question? Uh, I, I've just failed. I've just failed the conversation. Yeah, that was. It was a trap. It was. A, it was. <laughs> no, no, it's Wednesday. It yeah. is Wednesday. 
run for president anyway, Ed. So <laughs> yeah, that's you're not. I, I am ineligible. Um, um, no, no, I, I, w- I was seeking a reaction to what Max said and Corey said. And if, if either you or Rosa or Corey have any questions for Max on his trip, please feel free. To I do. Um, I'm a specific one about th- what we're see- what we're hearing from the Ukrainians and from NATO officials about the um, speed with which the two most important things um, are running out. And one of them is artillery shells and the other is infantry people. Um, you know, both of which Ukraine is heavily outnumbered, um, on and needs to replenish very, very quickly. If this situation isn't going to go from a sort of attritional one to, uh, you know, possible collapse of, of some of the Ukrainian fronts. Um, what's your sense of whether that's an accurate picture or whether we're, this is partly just, um, trying to concentrate minds so that this bill gets passed. Because if it's accurate, then this could be a negatively very dynamic situation, much, much more more quickly than we fear. Yeah, I think it is. I think it is accurate. I mean, obviously, in terms of specifics, Ukrainian officials are not going to share with me the levels of their ammunition stockpiles. I mean, those are very closely guarded national secrets. Uh, but there's no question that you're 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 seeing it in reports from the front, where uh, Ukrainian soldiers are now limited to firing one artillery shell for every five shells or more that the Russians are firing. So they're clearly rationing artillery ammunition as we speak. And I think there is a real risk that Avdivka, uh, this town in Donetsk province, could fall fairly quickly. My greater concern is about Kupiansk, which is this town in Kharkiv province, uh, because it would not be a national disaster for Ukraine, although it would be disheartening if Avdivka fell, Russia taking more of the Donbass, but it would be a catastrophe if Kupians fell because then Russian troops would once again be besieging Kharkiv, which is Ukraine's second largest city, which I visited on this trip, which is already getting a higher level of bombardment than any other major city in the country. I think you know, it's it's not just artillery ammunition. I think the other critical shortcoming potentially coming up is air defense ammunition. And this is the thing that has really allowed Ukraine to function at a fairly high degree of normalcy despite the ongoing Russian assault. It's the fact that the major cities, and especially Kiev, are pretty well protected with Western-provided uh, anti-missile systems. If Ukraine starts to run out of ammunition, which I think that they will before too long, especially for the patriots, you're going to see, you could potentially see Syria or Chechnya levels of destruction in their cities far beyond anything we've seen to date, which would lead to horrific loss of life. It would also lead to the end of Ukraine's burgeoning economic recovery made possible by their victory in the Black Sea, which is has export volumes around Odessa back to almost pre-war levels. So there's hope for some economic resiliency now, which would be dashed if all of a sudden their cities are getting pulverized. You would see another major refugee crisis. It would just be a horrible catastrophe. So I think those are the two immediate uh, dangers that they will have shortages of artillery ammunition, air defense ammunition. And there's a larger looming issue of manpower and, and conscription, which is a very fraught debate in Ukraine. They des- they desperately need to pass a new conscription law, which is in the parliament, to expand conscription and to give the soldiers who have been at the front, many of them, for two years continuously, they have to have a chance to get relieved and go back and 
have some new folks take over. So that's that's something that has to be done. But that's not something that's going to. I don't think that's something that's going to cause the front to collapse in the next few months. Whereas a shortage of artillery ammunition could very well have that effect. And again, not across the board, but in key specific spots. And you could very well see that kind of building on itself and getting worse and worse. So uh, that's something we really need to avoid by by getting that aid bill through and, and, and sending Ukraine what it needs to hold the line, which it can certainly do with, with U.S. and European aid. So, Ed, did you want to do a follow-up? I saw you move your hand, or were you just planning to take another guess at what day it was? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's Thursday. I've 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 Googled it in the intervening time. Um, yeah, yeah, just a very quick one. I mean, if if you know the situation does deteriorate and say Kharkiv falls into Russian hands, which would be a worst case scenario from where we're sitting now, the urban warfare in a city that size. I mean, we've seen what's happened in smaller towns like um, Mariupol and Bakhmut and, and Melitopol, but. Uh, the urban warfare in Kharkiv would sort of put what's happening in Gaza now, you know, into the shade. Yeah, I don't want to even think about that worst case scenario, having visited Kharkiv. And I think the Ukrainians would would fight like tigers uh, to hold on to Kharkiv. And remember, even during the initial Russian offensive, the Russians never got into, never took Kharkiv itself, although they were on the outskirts. And I saw some of the, in some of the northern suburbs, I mean, it's like block after block of buildings that have just been pulverized in Russian artillery and airstrikes. It's horrifying to see. And, you know, projecting that to the whole city, which is a t- city of more than 2 million people, too horrible to contemplate. I would add, by the way, that one of the most uh, inspiring and heartbreaking things I saw in Ukraine were these subway schools in Kharkiv, where in five subway stations in the city, they have actually opened up schoolhouses for elementary school children. A small number of them can actually go to school with their peers instead of having to do online learning like much of the rest of the student population because, of course, the above-ground normal schools are too dangerous to to go into now with the Russian bombardment. So it was, it was kind of inspiring to see Ukrainian ingenuity at work again, creating these underground schools. And it was wonderful to, you know, talk with the little kids who were going there and how happy they were to be in school. But it's just heartbreaking to see these what 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 the Russians are doing, you know, driving these poor school kids underground so they can just get an education. I mean, this, you know, I really want, you know, the, the whole point of the column I wrote was really just, I want to grab Mike Johnson by the lapels and say, hey, buddy, why don't you come to Ukraine? You are going to determine the fate of this country. Their lives, their sovereignty, their future rest in your hands. Why don't you at least have the decency to go over there, look them in the eye and tell them you're going to sell them out or at least to see for yourself what the hell is going on. But he's never done it. Just a complete goddamn disgrace. Uh, Absolutely true. Almost as disgraceful as Lindsey Graham going over there and saying, I've got your back. And then coming back here and saying, you know, on the other hand, maybe I don't have your back. Uh, Rosa? Lindsey Graham, that's Lindsey Graham. I mean, I think Lindsey's Graham, Lindsey Graham's character or lack of character has been evident for some time now. And, and this is just the latest uh, betrayal of ideals and values he, he has championed himself. Um, and yeah, I, how that man looks in the mirror, how he faces anybody ever is astonishing to me. Um, but I, I actually... Here's one thing that I think that we collectively need to do more and do better. Um, Max, I'm in total agreement with you um, about how unconscionable it is 
just from uh, the human perspective, um, that we seem to be on the verge of abandoning Ukraine and the Ukrainian people and and the lack of interest in, in acknowledging that. I think I think that's that's absolutely right. You know, it's it's morally it's appalling, it's morally outrageous. But I also think that there is certainly amongst the on the Republican side, and a little bit amongst Democrats as well, obviously, there is a sort of compassion fatigue, you know, of oh yeah, well, that's really sad. Well, there's sad stuff all over the place, and like, why is this my problem? And like, I hear you, whatever, you know, but like people suffer all over the world. We can't help all of them. Sorry. And and I think there's a different part of the argument which we're maybe not collectively doing as good enough of a job as we should be in articulating, which is the self-interested piece. You know, and I think this is true about NATO in general, for instance, as well as, as Ukraine specifically, that, that I think we do, it's so obvious to us, why are these alliances important? Well, duh, right? You know, why is Ukraine sovereignty important from, from a national interest perspective? Duh. Um, that we sometimes forget that, that it's not necessarily at all obvious to lots of Americans. Um, and I think we need to do a better job of putting out there. This is not just that we're saying, we're saying this is a moral imperative. Let's talk about if Ukraine loses, what happens next? You know, what does Putin do next? What happens in Europe? What happens to Europe's economy? How does that affect the American economy? How does that affect American security? How does that, you know, that, that those, those arguments, I think we're maybe should be, should be spending more of our time and energy on laying those out as well. Um, in a real, this is how these particular set of dominoes falls. Um, because I don't know that to most Americans, that's particularly obvious. You know, what is at stake to the American economy and to American security if Ukraine falls? Um, and this is not to say that that's the only reason Americans should care. Um, you know, I think we should care for all the human reasons too. But, but I, I also think that I also think that it's a it's an important case to make as well is that even if you don't care on a human level or even if you say there are just so many sad things happening and yeah I get that this is one of them but like I've got problems too um here's why this one should be your problem too this one is your problem too that's what we need to be saying I think no doubt that that's the case um Max you may want to comment on that I'd also like to ask you a follow up question here which is clearly, as you were over there and you were talking to these folks, they're aware of what's possible here in Washington, here in the United States. They know that all the promises that we have their back could be broken. Uh, they know because it, they, you know, this aid has been delayed for four months. I'd love to get a sort of sense from you of what their candid reaction to that is. Well, you're right, David. And in fact, what was striking to me is that Ukrainians are following this very closely, what's happening in Washington. I'm not just talking about like cabinet ministers in Kiev. I'm talking about like ordinary Ukrainians you talk to in cities across the country. They're all following it very closely. I mean, I even had one Ukrainian refugee. I mean, we asked a bunch of folks like, what is your message for Washington? And one of these Ukrainian refugees, uh, his message was vote for Biden because he understands that Biden is for Ukraine and, and Trump is not there. I mean, yeah, they know that their future really depends on on what happens in Washington. And, you know, they're just, 
they're powerless to affect it, of course. They're just praying and hoping that uh, Washington is not going to abandon them. And I think one of the things that really struck me in talking to Ukrainians is it's not just a matter of having ammunition. It's not just a matter of having military materiel. There's also the psychological uh, element because Ukrainians feel like they, they know that Russia is a much bigger country, many more resources, but they feel like they can resist Russia because uh, the rest of the world has their back because they have this crucial outside support from the West, from the Europe and the United States. So if the U.S. were to cut them off and basically say, go screw yourselves, we don't care what happens to you, it would be, yeah, it would be a, a, a devastating military blow, but it would also be a devastating psychological blow. They would really feel adrift and abandoned, especially, and they, they would really be, they, they wouldn't understand what's going on because for two years, American politicians of all stripes have said, we will stand with you as long as it takes. And now, you know, this small minority of MAGA Republicans may invalidate that proposition. So it's, you know, I my heart goes out to to the Ukrainians and I was almost embarrassed to, you know, to talk to them because I'm so ashamed of what uh, what what these American politicians may do to them. There's no question that that's the case. You know, Corey, uh, we all know each other pretty well, and we've been doing this for a while, and we all know Max to be a fairly um, dispassionate, and at times, I will be honest, sometimes a little phlegmatic in terms of his commentary. But it is clear that, um, you know, he is deeply impassioned about this, that he's very moved by the experience. And I'm moved by the fact that he is. And it strikes me that here we are coming up in a few days on the second anniversary of this Russian escalation of their 10-year war that took place two years ago. Um, And, you know, all that passion that the country may have felt in the wake of that event seems to have dissipated. And somehow, the people who are the champions of Ukraine seem to, you know, be losing ground. Is that, do you think, because of some communications problem on their part? Or do you think there's something inherently um, wrong at the core of this MAGA movement where it's not just that they're taking advantage of our, you know, waning interest, our short attention span, but they're actively malevolent? Well, at a minimum, they're dangerously reckless with the security of our country and other countries. Um, and, and that so many Republicans, that, that Senator Cotton, who had built such a powerful reputation as being strong on defense policy and sensible and a potential leader of Republicans in that way voted against aid to Ukraine uh, when it came before the Senate, I think really does show the extent to which uh, elected Republicans believe that Donald Trump is not just the future, but the present of our political party. That's deeply disturbing. Uh, at this point in each podcast, we say to everybody who is uh, not a member, thanks for joining us. Thanks for being with us for this first half hour. Hope you found it of some value. Uh, and if you find conversations like this of value uh, and want to hear the rest of it, 
uh, you've got to become a member. And it's easy to do. You go to the DSRnetwork.com. You click on membership. It's $5 a month. It will be until March 1st. So this is your last chance to get that special low rate that it has been, by the way, for seven years. Uh, So this is our first very small increase in that price. Uh, And then you'll be able to hear the rest of the podcast. Uh, But for now, if you're not a member, bye-bye. And if you are a member, stand by for more.